Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Today on Starting Over with Shannon, we welcome Swiss clinical psychologist and sex therapist, Ariane Tawney. This was the first interview I had the pleasure of recording face-to-face, and it was so wonderful, not only because of the conversation that you're about to hear, but also a great evening with lots of food and wine. And I remember Ariane was wearing this beautiful red dress, and she was dancing around the living room. She does Brazilian zouk dancing. And I was like, oh my God, this woman is just so totally free in her sexuality, comfortable in her body. And it was so amazing to see. But as you will hear in this conversation, that wasn't always the case for her. And in fact, at age 15, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And for the next three years, she was splitting her time between school and hospital. But while this was without question a challenging period in her life, she says it led her to have a more intimate connection with her body, her intuition, and a passionate curiosity about living a meaningful and joyful life. Fast forwarding some years, Ariane is now challenging that passion and curiosity into her work as a therapist. And she is here with us today to share her own starting over story, as well as to discuss and share with us some of her professional expertise, particularly in the realm of sex and relationships. So we discuss common problems she observes through her work, such as how we can maintain or get back desire in relationships What can we do about potentially mismatched libidos? How do we deal with cheating if that arises? We also discuss ways to spice up your sex life, sexual fantasies, threesomes, polyamory, sex toys, and a whole lot more. So if this isn't clear already, this may not be the kind of podcast episode you want to play with your parents or your kids in the car or when you're carpooling on the way to work. Or maybe it is. I don't know. You do you. No judgment. But with no further ado, here is my conversation with Ariane. Thank you very much for being here with us today, Ariane. Thank you for having me, Shannon. So let's go straight into this experience that you had at a really crucial moment in your life, that is adolescence, diagnosed with leukemia at age 15 that that must have been challenging to say the least yes it was quite challenging and at the same time um, I was kind of okay with it in a weird way in the sense that when I had uh, the diagnosis um, my first reaction was oh it makes sense you know, because I, I had actually information, my body was actually telling me for months that something was not right, but I had no idea that, you know, at 15, I wasn't thinking, oh, maybe I have cancer. You know, that's not something. I don't I think anyone thinks that at any point in their life. <laughs> exactly. So, so I had no idea, but like months before my body was actually telling me already some, something was 
was off. Mm-hmm. Um, I even had some kind of intuitions just before going to bed. Sometimes I would kind of almost go to sleep and then wake up suddenly and think, oh my God, I have something that is wrong and I have a very uh, a problem, you know, an illness or something. And then I would rationalize and say, no, come on, you know, you're just having some kind of weird panic, panic attacks and that makes no sense. Mm. Um, so when I had the diagnosis, it kind of made all sense. I was like, oh, oh, that's what it was about. <laughs> and, and then quite quickly, I, I was, okay, what do we do about it? Of course, I had no idea of what, the, what type of challenge it would be. And I had afterwards three years of chemotherapy, which is a long time. So between 15 and 18, I was um, living my life between home, school, and uh, the hospital. And yes, it's true that went at like, so it happened at a time where I was um, kind of in my puberty and discovering my body as a teenager. And also kind of, you know, I was beginning to go in the teenage years where I was, I wanted to experience stuff, you know, first time being drunk or first time having sex. And this kind of couldn't happen you know, alcohol and chemotherapy is not a great idea. (laughs) So I just had to wait a little longer. In the end, I didn't really do it. I mean, the sex part, of course, but not the alcohol. Um, And so, so yeah, this, this really kind of um, shaped the way I shaped my relationship to my body in a very specific way. How so? So, yeah, well, I would say it's what happened is that, first of all, I realized I had a body, which, you know, maybe seems a bit weird. But before that, I was really living in my head and I was a very um, will-driven person. I still am, I think. I still am. (laughs) Um, But anyway, my body was like, you know, something I would drag along and or or something that was there to uh it helped me do stuff yeah a tool yeah a tool yeah. exactly and suddenly i realized that my body was more than that it was actually what was helping me be alive and that it was really important for me to listen to it and that my body is a temple that i also need to take care of it mm-hmm. and what about in terms of your your body image and your appearance because that is something that is especially for teenage girls teenage guys too of course but girls you know that especially in a hyper kind of image-based society where your body is for one changing then you're also looking at often comparing to others and I imagine going through the chemotherapy like you did that would have had a very drastic physical change for you it was absolutely so yeah i mean i i lost my hair but mm. i lost also all my hair all my body hair and so that meant i didn't have eyebrows i also took quite a lot of weight um because i had some some medication that would uh, make me gain weight so it was quite difficult to suddenly see my body in such a different way and i need to i needed to cope with that so at the beginning of when, when they told me, you know, they told me I would lose my hair. And so they kind of prepared me to that. I, I, there is no real preparation, you know, once you, when it happens and suddenly I had like loads of pieces of hair in my hand, it was very, very strange and weird. But 
what I what I decide is like okay, so I have two choices. I either I feel totally depressed about it and I really I'm sad and you know I feel like I have nothing valuable anymore or I can decide to make the best out of it. And I chose the second option because I thought, you know, whatever happens it's going to be more fun. Um <laughs> <laughs> so what I did is that for me it was the opportunity to discover ways of taking care of my body in the sense that I had to find ways of putting on make makeup that would kind of mask the way that the, the fact that I didn't have eyebrows or eyelashes. I also find ways of putting on scarves on my head so that it would look nice, uh, so that it would look as if I had some kind of hair. So I, I found kind of ways to go around it. And I must say, I was very lucky to have amazing friends that were so supportive. And I remember, you know, my friends used to say, oh, but you know, out of all of us, the only one that could actually wear no hair. Yeah, have you. no hair yeah, no. and wear a scarf and draw <laughs> exactly. on your eyebrows and still look beautiful. Exactly. I can imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So that was very, very supportive and very nice of them. But what a beautiful story of resilience. I'm uh, trying to imagine me being in that situation right now. And I think I would have had a lot of uh, bathroom crying floor episodes. And yeah, I mean, to, to just say, I'm going to pick myself up and get on with it, still make myself feel beautiful, respect my body, love my body not for what it did to you, but for how it is healing you. Mm -hmm. Were there any other lessons or insights that you had at that time that you have carried forward with you into your adulthood? Mm. Yes. I mean, this time was, um, was really a good time for me to think. So when I was at the hospital or even when I was home and, you know, going through some pain or just I sometimes I had to rest a lot. I had to sleep a lot because I was so tired. Um, well, these times were good times for me to assess what were my priorities, what is really important in life. Also re-evaluate the relationships I had. So the relationships I had with my family or with my friends or with, uh, at the time I had a boyfriend when I was diagnosed and I really kind of cleaned up all these relationships. Um, so for example, with friends, I realized that I could have a say in who I wanted to connect with or not. So I realized I could really have an impact and, and choose who, were, who is my chosen family, mm -hmm. who are the friends I want to stay connected to and who are the ones that, you know, maybe are not so nourishing. And this information I realized came from my body. So again, after seeing people, you know, look, when I had leukemia, all my school kind of came to visit. It was kind of, ooh, it's, it was a mix of, you know, being sad for me and a mix of fascination. Let's be honest, you know. And so I had so a lot of people coming to see me at the hospital, like the three first week and then only the best one stayed. <laughs> wow. That's a learning. That's a learning in itself, that's isn't it? That's a learning in itself. Yes. Absolutely. Who is there for you in the hard moments in life? Yeah. And in the long term, because, you know, many people were there during the three first weeks. And then who stayed for three years? 
these people, by the way, I still my friends today. <laughs> That's beautiful. So I guess there was a big learning in terms of listening to your body. So mm -hmm. you're saying now that's the impact you've taken with you, this listening to inner, whatever that is, guidance, intuition. Does, is that also how you assess people that you're coming into your life now, whether that be like a professional opportunity or meeting a new person? Are you more in tune with your intuition, how your body is feeling about that person and their energy and, and so on rather than the mind? Definitely. So that's something that began when I was, when I had leukemia, but I really stayed with that. And I actually even increased that awareness of my body. So today when I meet someone new, um, even when I meet my patients, you know, I mm -hmm. just tune into my body. And also during the sessions I have with my patients, my body is giving me loads of information of about what is going on right now in the session so really my body tells me hey this is a good idea this is a bad idea or you know even after some some conversation or some day with a friend I always check do I feel nourished do I feel well or do I feel t totally depleted or even in my job you know all sorts of situations, I really take my body as a kind of a compass um, to tell me, hey, you know, does it feel good? Uh, what's my gut feeling telling me? You know, this idea of gut feeling, I really like that expression in English. Mm -hmm. It's really about that. What does my body tell me? What mm -hmm. does my gut feeling tell mm -hmm. me? And I think it's As I was a very will-driven person, as I told you, it was difficult for me to listen to it because it was kind of, I'm a mind person, you know, I'm taking rational decisions or whatever. And today I kind of take it on the other way around and say, hey, what does my body say? You know, my mind has its opinion and it's okay. We can have a conversation together. But what does my gut feeling say? Have you avoided any mm, strong difficulties as... I say strong because nobody nobody ever escapes difficulty in life. There will always be challenges that you experience in life. But listening to your gut instinct, your gut feeling, as you're saying, has that helped you to navigate other challenges that have come into your life that could have been worse if you were not doing that? Hmm. I My answer would be definitely yes. I'm just thinking of an example right now. Well, maybe you don't know the examples because maybe you didn't have those difficulties. What I have in mind is how I, the biggest thing I ever experienced where I did not listen to my gut instinct and I said, okay, never again, was getting into a relationship with a narcissist because there were a multitude of warning signs that I rationalized away or just quite frankly, completely ignored. And that happened. Well, I was also quite young in that instance, but I really learned through that the power of listening to that intuition and not rejecting it as inferior to what is produced by the intellect. So definitely, yeah, these type of examples, I mean, I, I have had some type of examples like that, not necessarily with a, a narcissistic relationship, but just in general, sometimes I would meet a person and think, oh, that's not for me. Mm. Or actually also on, on the other side you know oh that person I really feel like we should be doing something together so for example most um, I remember 
uh, when I was studying psychology, I met this lady uh, because we were we had to do some kind of um, interview of people already working in the psychology field. And I remember meeting that person and I had this very strong intuition and it was very strong in my body saying, I need to learn from that person. And I must say, the five years psychology I did were very interesting, but what I learned with that person was how to be, not just, just do psychology, but how to be a psychologist. And that was really a very, very important learning for me. Can you elaborate on that? I think that mm. could be a very interesting point. The difference between being and doing psychology? Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So doing psychology is having techniques, you know, so there are tons of them. You can, you can actually learn them in books and or at university or with a course. And they're very interesting. They're very good. And you can even name them, you know, like some, some people actually say, oh, this technique of psychology is the best. And that is whatever you should do. And it's like, it works for everyone. Being a psychologist for me or being a therapist in general actually is something that happens in the body or oh, that's how I feel it but it's really about how do I hold the space for whatever is going on mm. and whatever the technique I'm using whatever I do or whatever I be or however I stand is therapeutical so this makes it broader because that means that it's not about what technique I use. Does, and that's what I often say to my patients, you know, I tell them, I have tons of techniques. So if there is one of them you don't like, we change. Because I know that this is not the important thing. Mm. The important thing is really what is going on in during the therapy, during the session, that is so important. And this is, has nothing to do with doing. It has everything to do with being, mm. how you are with the other person, how you just sit down with another person, how you look into each other's eyes because, you know, you're being in empathy. Yeah, and very present. Mm. I love the way you describe that as holding space. I think that's very powerful. And I think that could be very, very healing for people who are coming to you, having yes. sessions with you. So tell me a little bit about this transition into psychology and what you chose to do thereafter in your professional life. So when I, when I had this uh, leukemia, I had a psychotherapist who, who was working with me. She was an amazing person and she really, really helped me through this whole challenge, but in general through my teenage years and everything I was going through. So she was really, really helpful. And that inspired me. When I had to choose my studies, I first went through medicine, kind of hoping I would save the world. <laughs> but then I realized it was not enough people oriented for me. So I went uh, to go to psychology. And I had so much fun during that studies. I loved it. I loved mm -hmm. probably every bit of it, almost. And so then I worked as a, as a time as a psychologist, actually as a career counselor for schools and for also for adults who were having existential crisis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what should I do with my life? Um, and then, but so this was good and okay, but I had, um, I was kind of a little bit bored and I had this question about sex that came again and again. And I would talk about sex 
every day with my colleagues. You know, my colleagues were kind of, oh yeah, when Ariane is around, we're always going to speak about sex. You know, <laughs> kind of idea. And so I decided to quit uh, that place and start over. I didn't really know what it was going to be. But one of my dreams was to teach sex education in schools. And so I thought, oh yeah, maybe beginning a sexology course would be a good way to to go for that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And uh, since then, I, I work also as a sex therapist. Mm. So I guess what I should add is, what is a sexologist? I'm sure a lot of people are wondering that and we... Well, it feels like a necessary piece of information. So what, what is a sexologist and what do they do? So a sexologist is a therapist that will help people with whatever is going on in their sex life. So it could be, for example, to improve uh, what, their sex life. For, so it can either be because there is some kind of problem or difficulty, or, you know, like pain or problems with erection or ejaculations or lack of desire, something like that. But it could also be because, you know, the sex life is kind of okay, but they want to spice it up a little. So in any case, it's kind of the idea is to improve the sex and intimacy life of people. Because it can also, you know, it's not just the sex, what is going on in your bed, but more generally how the intimacy in the relationship is going. Mm -hmm. And out of curiosity, in in your work, in your practice, do you have more individual or couples as clients? I would say that at the moment I have more individuals. Um, also because a lot of people, even, even though they have couple problems, sometimes they come, like there is only one of them that really wants to look into it, for example, or sometimes they feel too ashamed and they feel like, oh, it's kind of my problem to deal with and so that the relationship is is better kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So actually at the moment, I have more uh, individuals. More individuals. Mm -hmm. And what are the most common problems that your clients will bring to you? What do you hear the most? Mm -hmm. So the main question that people come with is around desire so it can be something like I don't really feel desire anymore in my relationship or one of the two people have more desire than the other something like that so around desire and not really feeling the same sparkle in the relationship that they had in the earlier stages of their relationship yeah exactly and does it usually happen that this is after a long period of time and if that is long, how like years of being married, or could this also be in 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 earlier stages as well? Mm -hmm. So no, it can happen actually at any time. Uh, I have some couples coming in; they've been together like a year, which is not very long, uh, and some others have been together like thirty years. So the time is not really the main problem or the main question. It's more about what is going on in the relationship that will actually have an impact on uh, the desire and libido. Mm -hmm. So with the libido, I guess in mind, I can imagine there being, I mean, I hear this even amongst friends, for example, that they report a difference in libido between them and their partner and that causing complications. Is this something that you hear regularly? And if so, what do you suggest for people to do mm. about that? 
Yeah, that is a question that comes up really often. So first of all, there needs to be a conversation about kind of the basic libido, like every people have. So some people want or, or are happy with sex once a day, some others once a week, some others once a month, some others even don't really want to have sex. Mm -hmm. So first of all, to have a conversation around that is kind of important. Like, you know, just an open conversation about, hey, what's your ideal frequency? You know, what, what if you could do whatever you want, how many times a day, a week, uh, a month would you have sex? Mm -hmm. um, and so first of all, that gives kind of a baseline. But that doesn't mean, even if one person says, oh, for me, it would be, you know, once every week and another says, well, for me, it's only once a month. That doesn't mean it's a terrible thing. That just means that it gives a baseline and then you can work around it because desire, part of desire comes from the body. So it's true, you know, hormones and, you know, arousal. But a lot of the desire comes from the relationship, from the context, uh, and from a, a mindset. How you go into this idea of having sex together. Mm. So in terms of what people can do if they feel mismatched in that area, what would you say? Mm. So, well, first of all, having a conversation, an open conversation about it always helps, even though I know how it can be difficult sometimes to have an open conversation about it. So that's also what sexologists can be useful for, you know, just having someone someone that couples actually think of as a kind of an expert or something like that, even though I think the best experts of a relationship are the people inside the relationship. But, you know, having someone to help them go through the conversation if they don't manage to have it together. Um, and then it's to work around, it's really also to kind of figure out what is the need behind a certain quantity or a certain regularity into sex what what are the people looking for in having sex because some people would need that for i don't know feeling loved uh, some others want to have sex just because it's a kind of a basic physical need and they just need you know their release or yeah their release kind something. of thing yeah, yeah. exactly uh, some other people it's a it's a play you know it's an activity that they have and they think it's really fun to have it uh, some other people it's where they can sex can have a also kind of a, a function of rebalancing the relationship in a way like or rebalancing a life like they, you could have some people for example that Uh, have a very, very demanding work, let's say, and really, really like to let go during sex. And so it's their way of letting go in life and just being able to relax. So for them, it's part of their balance. So there is many reasons for wanting sex. And it's a good idea to talk about what are the reasons we have to want sex. Because if we are able to talk about kind of what is behind the need for sex, then maybe we can go to other needs, basic needs, that we can then imagine other solutions. Because sex is sometimes just a mean to an end. It's just it's not necessarily a need in itself. Or it's it's possible to, you know, maybe sex 
um, satisfies a lot of needs. Mm. So for example, uh, yeah, let's say for that person that has a very demanding work, sex is a place where they can just relax. Maybe what they need is spaces to relax. It's spaces to relax with their partner. But maybe their partner, for them, sex is not a place where they relax. Maybe for them, it's something that asks, asks a lot of them, you know, maybe. And so maybe it's about finding ways of, hey, how can we relax together that works for both of us? Maybe actually cuddling on the couch works for both of us. And so we can do more cuddling and less sex so everyone's happy. In a sense, you know what I mean? It's a yeah, kind of because a, people's needs are being met. Exactly. So it's actually detecting what needs, what other needs there could be rather than the at least first perceived need of, of sex. Can you tell me a little bit about what can arise when there is this mm, mismatch in libido and one partner, say, agrees to have more sex than they would like to just because they don't want to lose the relationship mm -hmm. and then the other side of that too what what can kind of what dynamic can that produce mm -hmm. yes so in this mismatch many things can happen because uh, in a way you you will have situations where so let's say the first person wants to have more sex um, obviously if their partner is not so into it it's going to be frustrating, you know, let's, let's be honest. It's going to be frustrating and maybe they're going to feel very hungry for sex in a sense. And, you know, when you're hungry, it's difficult not to say to the other person, I'm hungry, you know, let's have something to eat, <laughs> which is kind of the same with sex. Ooh, I really want sex. Not not. Would you like to have some? So this works if we're both hungry at the same time. That's super, super, you know, very nice. We can have a meal, it's fun and stuff. But when there is this mismatch, it's like the other person is like, oh, but pff, yeah, we could have something to eat, but I'm not really hungry. So even if you, you know, I'm taking this metaphor because it's very, it's, sex and food is pretty much the same. So when you go and have this meal together and one person is super hungry, super happy to eat, they're like eating so much and it's so fun. And the other person is like, they have maybe the same meal, but they're eating with no pleasure. So maybe they eat anyway because, you know, they have this social thing of let's eat together. So they eat anyway. But that doesn't mean that they're really um, into it. And with sex, it can be exactly the same. So one person really wants sex and they end up by their enthusiasm or pressure they put on or whatever, they end up obtaining that or the other one gives in, you know, they're like, oh, maybe I should have sex once a week because if not, my partner is going to leave me, you know. But the thing is, if you go having sex with no appetite for it, then it's kind of, you have to force yourself to have it. You know, it's not like there is, it's a type of consent because the person has says, yeah, I'm okay with having sex, but they're not really in, in it. You know, they don't really want it, which means that after a time they might you know, if you eat without appetite, it's not going to help you like what you're eating. You know, it's not going to, the, the appetite is not going to come back. You need to wait before you have your next meal so that you would actually have appetite, right? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's the same with sex. And so with a person, if they're if they keep eating while or having sex while they don't want it, sometimes what can even happen is a, a type of disgust. And so it can just be like a type of disgust for sex or even have some kind that can sometimes transform into resentment of the other person. Kind of, oh, but, you know, you're asking sex of me again. You're asking something of me again. And if this goes into a relationship where there is already a type of feeling of sacrifice, this kind of adds to it. And the sex becomes another place where the sacrifice thing happens like for example well you know uh i'm already so nice with you i make food for you i take care of the kids i uh, go and work for you i do everything for you and on top of that you want sex Mm -mm, this is not gonna happen so sometimes it's a way as well of rebalancing the relationship in a way um saying i have the impression that i give too much and so i'm not gonna give you this other thing that you would like which is sex Hmm. so this can really be something that goes into a broader understanding of the relationship and this is very important when we are in therapy to understand what is going on that the sex is actually hmm, another way of dealing with the relationship but not it's not just a conversation around sex kind of thing you know it's broader one thing i i'm thinking of as you're saying this is a book by somebody called gary chapman's from 1992 i think it's one of these bestsellers in 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 pop psychology it's called the i think five love languages five love languages they are touch words of affirmation so compliments quality time acts of service, doing things, hence why I'm thinking of what you're saying, and gift giving and receiving. And his premise is that we all have a primary love language, a secondary one too, perhaps, but a primary way that we like to both give and receive love. And he posits that there are a lot of relationship problems because there is uh, not a lack of understanding of the needs of the other person. So let's say mine is words of affirmation. I And I show my partner that I love them by telling them that I love them, by telling them that they're handsome and that they mean a lot to me. Then I would like that to be done in return because that's what makes me feel good. But maybe that isn't the case for my partner and they actually really like this acts of service, doing things for, for the other person uh, or a touch. They, they, they feel loved by me when I have sex with them or give them a, a kiss on the cheek throughout the day or put my hand on their back. And yeah, I'm wondering whether there is an element of this too in the potential misunderstanding or communication problems that so often arise in couples. Yeah, I agree. So um, I don't know about these these five specific uh, types of, of love. I would say that there are probably many more, but it's very true that we we all learn to love and we learn a way of loving in different ways. And I think it's very important to really be clear about, hey, how do I love other people and how do I like to receive love? What are So a good question to ask oneself is, what are the moments where I feel the most loved? 
What does it look like? What is in these moments? I would say that with needs, one thing that is important to understand is that most of the time we have no idea what our needs are. <laughs> First of all, this is already quite a big job to just understand, hey, my needs is this. This is why I'm thinking everyone loves a good quiz or a book that gives you five love languages, not like, sorry, I don't want your level of expertise because if it was 101 different love languages, you'd be like, oh, stuff that, no way. <laughs> Make this simple for me. Love is hard enough as it is already. God damn it. Exactly. So I think what we are all wanting to know at least, is to have some tips on on what we can do to spice up our sex life. Yeah, there are many things that we can do. Hmm. So it kind of depends on how much we want to spice up our sex life. Of course, there are many ways to go. It can be very simple. So it can be just by, um, oh yeah, so for example, it could be stories, you know, some people don't uh, even talk during sex, which is fine. You know, you don't have to talk during sex, but some people really like it. So it's about, for example, you can either have dirty talks during sex, which mm. could already be a spice up, a spice up of the sex life when you don't talk ever and suddenly you begin to have some kind of dirty talk but it could also be stories so you could either listen to erotic stories or read some and you could read some together which could be fun if you're being creative you could even write some why not some some of my patients like doing that so it can be very simple things that you do. You don't necessarily need any kind of speci special material about it. Or you could, um, of course, a lot of people, when they think of spicing up their sex life, they think of sex shops and going and using toys or... I should add, Ariane will have a great recommendation on this. So my partner and I were separated for 14 months Thank you, Australia, COVID restrictions, borders. And uh, yes, so Ariane met my partner and she said, oh my gosh, that's that's so long to be, you know, going without sex. And she says, you have to get your partner this womanizer. So I think I need to at least buy you a good drink because I love this toy. <laughs> By the way, CEO of Womanizer, if you want to connect with me, we can do some like affiliate marketing because I've been telling all of my friends to get this toy. I'm like it is the key to great orgasm. So that I can I can vouch for that one at least. I'm not sure what other ones you have up up your street, but yeah, definitely this one is is I mean for women at least or for people who have a clitoris, it's really quite amazing. Mm. It's really quite amazing, and it's I mean you have a different version, so you have the womanizer and you have another brand that is called the Satisfier, which is um, also less expensive for people who don't have the money to um, to pay a womanizer. I mean. I think it's worth the money, but you know, not everyone has this opinion and some people are Save very people, happy. save up. <laughs> exactly. And some people, you know, a lot of people are very happy with a satisfier too. Okay. Um, what does that do? It does exactly the same, which is really, it's, it's, it's the idea of having this pulsation that will kind of suck a little bit your, your clitoris, which is what the womanizer does. Mm -hmm. So it's the same technology but it's just a version that is, the design is different. Uh, you know, like most sex toys, really, you have a lot of sex toys that do kind of the same, but the design is not the same. The material they're made of is not the same. So 
when you're choosing a sex toy, it's a good idea to go in a shop and and look at them or if you can even touching them because you can really kind of decide what type of, of uh, sensation you would like. Mm -hmm. It's very different if you have uh, something with silicone or not or if it's more plastic or if it's metal even or glass. You know, you have all sorts of things existing um, for female and male for penises and vaginas for for all sorts of things and sex shop are great for giving also new ideas even if you don't buy anything going together in a sex shop can be really fun in itself and can even be enough to spice up the relationship because it could be you know just going in the sex shop and and have a conversation about would you do that you mm. know oh no i would never do that or Oh, have you seen that? I really like it. And sometimes you can even discover new stuff about your partner that you had no idea. I'm sure. I can fully imagine that. I'm thinking what happens when maybe you have some kind of fantasy that you haven't told your partner about, maybe even told anyone about. Maybe you're having sex with your partner and you're imagining this, but you're not even saying because you're, I guess, afraid of shame, being ashamed maybe in that situation, being embarrassed, yeah. not being accepted, not being lovable because it's a bit too out there or weird. Any views on this? Any stories on this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, fantasies are not so easy to share because it's so intimate. Um, so it, it does take a lot of, uh, you know, making the space feeling safe uh, for for both of the, um, of, of the people or more than two, actually. It could be many partners but anyways um so when it comes to sharing about fantasies i would suggest to first of all maybe you know you can have a first conversation about hey i really would like to share a fantasy with you but i'm really scared about your reaction or maybe you can try and share a fantasy that is close to it but not totally that so you just build up and so you kind of feel how it is on the other side, you know, because it's true. Some fantasies are not shared. I think it's also important to realize when people are telling us about their fantasy, that a fantasy doesn't mean that you want to do it in reality. Yes, that is you know? such a good point. It's very important because the fantasy is about, hey, this makes me fantasize. It doesn't mean that I really want to do it. For example, there is a lot of people who have fantasies about threesomes, let's say. Mm-hmm. But once they get to the threesome part, they are not happy at all. So sometimes fantasies are very nice in the fantasy world. And so when, there's, when you share a fantasy to another person, it's very clear to, it's important to say it's a fantasy, not a project. It's different. So this can also bring some safety back. So what do you do then if we, so you're saying you tentatively put your foot in, you decide to tell your partner that to you that you want to try this new thing. That is going to be such a vulnerable and scary space. It could be. Maybe it's not, depending on where you're at in your relationship and so on. But I think for a lot of people, that could be very daunting. What happens if, and I say this because I have a story. I remember someone, I, a friend of mine in a previous relationship of hers, that her boyfriend really wanted her to wear a strap on and to do anal with him and I think she was maybe this is linking to what you're saying before about like I don't know the the sacrificial element not so much necessarily losing your partner but for her it was well I want to 
respect his fantasy. It's not, I'm not too uncomfortable with it. I think that's a point. It's not like, oh my God, I'm never doing that. It's just like, that's a bit weird. Not overly for me, but if you really get off on that, I love you. I want you to enjoy this aspect. Mm -hmm. How could people navigate those kind of situations? Yeah. So what I would suggest is first of all, to navigate it together. So when the person shares about their fantasy and, you know, you receive that and you're like, Ooh, I'm not sure. Talk about that. Talk about the fact that you're not sure that you're willing to try, you know, because there is in that, in that example, there is a willingness to try, but she's not too sure it's okay for her. So really trying and, and go for, okay, I'm willing to try. Can we talk about it? You know, going through steps, maybe, maybe the strap on, it's quite something. It's not just anal. It's a strap-on and anal. So maybe they could go through first trying out going towards the anal area. Mm. You know, but just that. You know, not and it and the fantasy again, you know, a fantasy is so nice because it's a fantasy. So my suggestion would be play with the fantasy go with it you know you can play around the fantasy so it could be for example going towards the anal area and and you know stroking that's that space not even going in it or not doing anal yet but just going around it and maybe maybe telling stories about it and say who can you imagine how it's gonna be so like that like that this is a way of you know, taking in the fantasy and getting used to it as well for, for your friend, as you mm. were saying in this example, she needs to get familiar with that idea because what makes it weird or strange is that because she has never thought about it, you know, True. she's never, she's never thought about that type of fantasy maybe, or she's never imagined herself in it. So of course it's weird, you know, like everything you do new is weird. It doesn't even have to be about sex. So it's really to go by steps, you know, oh, there is this fantasy. What about we try it out? Or maybe, and, and again, when a person tells you about a fantasy, let's be clear what they're asking. Maybe they just want to tell you about the fantasy and not want to do anything about it. Could be also just that. You know, I have this fantasy I'm really ashamed of, let's say, and I want to tell you about it because we're so intimate. But then I will never want to speak about it again. Or maybe they want actually to play around it. And maybe they just want to play around it, but not really realizing it. Again, it's not maybe a project. Maybe he has this fantasy of, of strap-on, but he, once you have come with a real strap-on, it's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. This is yeah. really scary. You yeah. know, and what type of strap-on? Because there are all sorts of strap-ons, you know? So then it can be, oh, let's go and choose that strap-on together, for example, you know, if that's what they want, you know? It's really, it's really working it together. So I am wondering, as I know this is a common, common fantasy and also probably common reality, but people wanting to spice up their sex lives by either incorporating another person into the relationship, whether that be longer or for a night or what. So having a threesome or giving the other person permission to have sex with other people. 
let's go with the threesome stuff first, inviting somebody in. Have the, have you got any sort of stories or tips or anything to share with this in mind? Yeah, definitely. Because it's true that it's a quite a common uh, fantasy, but it can it can be either very fun or go very wrong. So <laughs> there are some small tips that can be useful to make it a nice experience. So first of all is to actually go through... So the threesome experience, first of all, is to make sure that everyone is okay with it, which is not so easy, actually, because saying, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with the threesome doesn't mean that the person is really okay about it because it doesn't mean that that the person really has thought it through. I've had experiences of people saying, yeah, sure, I'm all up for it. And then arriving at the moment, they kind of freeze and they're like, no, but actually I'm not okay with that. But now I said I was okay, so I need to go along with it kind of thing. This is really very common. So it's about thinking about it together. What does it mean to have a threesome who is going to be the third person if it's in a couple? You know, the couple is already um, established. Who's going to be the third person? Is it someone that we already know? Is it someone that we don't know? Uh, is it going to happen in a setting where we plan it? Or is it something that we would like to have spontaneously, etc.? And my suggestion would be to really keep it as free as possible. So obviously when we invite someone, you kind of have to plan it a little bit, but a good way of doing it is to say, okay, we're inviting someone, but we don't necessarily have the expectation that this is going to happen, you know, which is not easy, of course, to have no expectation, but it's to say, and and maybe be clear about why, you know, to the third person, mm-hmm. why they're inviting them, you know, it's like, okay, we would like to have a, a threesome and, and, uh, you know, maybe you would be up for it or not, you know, it's, but, but at least inviting the person and then saying, we'll see what happens. Because if you go in the idea that it has to happen, sometimes it becomes a little bit artificial and that makes it not such a nice experience and not like in the fantasy, because usually in the fantasy, there is a part of spontaneity or fun or something like that, you know? Um, so that would be one thing, making sure that, um, like we go into an idea of a threesome for the good reasons. Okay. Is it really to spice up the relationship or is it because uh, we would like to have sex with that other person, but we know we, we have, we have to kind of, uh, you know, we are in an exclusive relationship. So maybe we can go around and have sex with this other person, but still with the other person around. This recipe is, for disaster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is really messy. It's really a recipe for a messy stuff. So to be clear with oneself, hey, why do I want to have a threesome? What is the fantasy behind it? And then it's to, you know, another thing that can happen is that sometimes we invite a third person and this person is almost a bit like an object, you know, because it's this person that is going to, confirm that we are in a relationship together kind of thing which is not so nice for the third person some people really like that role so then it's fine 
But most of people are like, yeah, this is not so comfortable because I don't really feel included. So threesomes that were a very nice experience that, that I heard about was, or I heard about it from the third party kind of thing, um, who was telling, it was, it was a couple that had already quite a long experience in, with threesomes and they were really able to, um, have this person with them. So it was really kind of welcoming in a sense. It was this couple that was there and they really welcomed this third person in their couple. And this is, um, you know, this can happen during the interaction by asking, asking to everyone if everyone is still okay. You know, consent is not something that you give once and for all, especially in sex. It's like, hey, okay, you consent to come and eat with us and talk about a threesome. That's one consent. Maybe you consent to take off your clothes. Okay, that's one part of the consent. But that doesn't mean that you're okay with everything else happening. So it's important to check regularly if everything is still okay. And actually, that's true not only for threesomes, but in general. Insects, yes. You know, it would be like, oh, are you okay with this happening? And sometimes we think that, oh my God, if we do that, it's going to be so artificial and it's going to take away all the spontaneity of the moment, which is not so true. In fact, in fact, during the moment, asking permission, like at several times, helps feeling safe. Feeling safe helps being relaxed. Being relaxed helps having greater orgasms. Yay. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> okay, what about the polyamory situations? I guess this is more, I would say even more taboo than threesomes. Um, well, depends. I mean, in the if if you are in a polyamorous community, then it's not necessarily taboo because uh, you know, they talk about it. The whole principle of polyamory is to have uh or to be okay with having several relationships and that everyone knows about it. So there is a degree of transparency in polyamory, which is a bit different from a monogamous relationship wanting to open up their relationship. You know, it's kind of a different movement. So, but people who are in polyamory and that it's already settled in, uh, this is not necessarily taboo. It's actually something that will be openly talked about. Okay. How do we deal with sex with other people? And polyamory doesn't necessarily mean threesomes by the way, you know, some polyamorous people have only sex with one other person at the same time. You know, it doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily have threesomes. Some have, some he even have what they call truple, yes. <laughs> which is like a relationship with three people. So why not? Uh, but even there, it doesn't mean that they have sex, the three of them together. Okay. everything is possible really you could imagine that only they have sex only the two of them or sometimes sometimes the three of them sometimes not at all you know so what happens either in this polyamorous situation or threesome situation where you feel you're still in a relationship with one with one person but you thought you were okay with a situation Let's say, let's say threesome. Let's take threesome as an example. You have a threesome. You think throughout that it's okay. You've consented. It's fine. You're happy to go the whole distance. But then afterwards, you're dealing with feelings of jealousy and so on. Is that something 
you could share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, sometimes that happens, and even not even in threesomes, but sometimes just in sex with one other person. Sometimes afterwards, you're having regrets. You think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that, or not that way, or maybe it was too quick. This can happen, you know, regret afterwards. So sometimes it can either um, be because you were not totally aligned during the time. You thought you were, but it was more convinc convincing yourself. This can happen. Sometimes it happens also that when you are in the moment, everything flows, but then afterwards, when you think about it, your analytical brain comes back in and your judgmental brain comes back in and thinks, ooh, you're such a bad person for having done that, you know? So it's important to, first of all, with oneself, check, hey, what is going on? Why am I going through all of this? And uh, Maybe it's something that happened during the threesome that made you insecure, insecure and it's a good idea to talk about it with, you know, the, your partner and say, Hey, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I re I was really okay. And also now I feel a bit weird about some of the things. Can we go through it again together? You know, what, what, what happened? Or can you explain to me what you meant when you said that, or when you did that, or, you know, again, feeling jealousy, feeling insecurity is about, it's just an information about something is going on inside of me. And maybe I need I need something from my partner or for myself. Sometimes you can, you know, satisfy your needs yourself. And it's about checking this out. Mm. It always really comes back to this underlying theme of good communication. Yeah, good communication with the other person, but with oneself too. This yes. is really fundamental. Being, you know, I had a friend uh, who said... Um, where well, we were talking about polyamory and, and we were talking about how, you know, if you want to go into polyamory or relationships in general, you actually have to be very clear that you're going to have to work on yourself, you know. But actually, then we had this talk about polyamory, but I said, well, you know what? I think it's true for any relationship. You really need to be okay with the idea that you're going to work on yourself because as long as you are in a relationship with someone, stuff is going to come up. And I mean, you can always try to not look at it and, you know, go around it, but at some point it's going to get back to you. So as long as you are in relationships it's important that you you are okay to look into yourself. Yeah, I that is so true. It's so true. Relationships will always be a mirror. And of course, the more intimate and close they are, the more that could have the potential for amazing joy and satisfaction, but also the opposite of that as well. It's such a journey. So just continuing our conversation on desire or lack thereof, it is something perhaps not spoken about widely in some cultures and more spoken about in other cultures, this topic of cheating. So I am wondering for the people who, you know, ha have not got this desire and they feel the need to go and be with somebody else, or maybe they have been, or maybe they have been cheated on. I imagine this is something that comes up a lot in your, mm -hmm. in your therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to share on this topic? Yeah, this happens, you know, actually more often than we think. Uh, this cheating thing, it can happen for many reasons. Either because, you know, a, a 
just a lack of sex. And, you know, as I told you before, if you're hungry and at some point you just never have enough to eat, maybe you go and eat at another table. Uh, so sometimes it's because of that, but it can be many other reasons. It can be relationship problems. It can be just a one-time thing. It can be, you know, many, many things. So, um, the question that people come with is, what do we do with that? You know, how do we deal with it? Um, some people come with the question of, okay, I feel super betrayed and I don't, you know, I, I feel betrayed and I can't, um, I can't find the security back in the relationship. So is it better that we leave each other? For example, mm, usually what I say, I mean, the, the safety, the security that you, that you have in the relationship is something th that you need to, um, to work on. Whatever happens, you know, the betrayal doesn't have to be cheating on someone. It could be something else. Like betrayal in a relationship happens, but for other stuff, sometimes it's about money. Sometimes it's about something else. So this whole thing of, can I actually trust my partner is something that is not given is something that actually is to, you have to work on. And so, but specifically when we talk about cheating on someone, so betrayal, that type of betrayal, there is really an important fact for the person that was betrayed to be able to speak about how much it hurts. And that the person that has betrayed, even though it's difficult, usually the person that has betrayed at the beginning, they want to give justification because maybe they feel guilty. You know? So it's like, no, but you know, I did that only because. And the idea is that, that the pers person that has betrayed waits a little bit before. It doesn't mean that it's not true. Maybe the person has betrayed for good reasons, you know, or for valid, valid reasons, but when the person that has been betrayed is still in their hurt, they can't listen to that. It's too, it hurts too much. So it's, an, it's about like really being able to make space for the insecurity, for what does it mean in our, in our relationship story that one of us has cheated on the other and listening to that and really listening to, Okay, where did it hurt you? Because sometimes it's not even about you have slept with someone else. Sometimes like, yeah, I don't care. The thing that was, that hurt so much is that you lied about it, you know? So maybe it's the lying part that needs to be heard. And just the fact that the partner can hear how much it hurts and say how much they regret it maybe. Or how much they say, yeah, maybe they don't regret what they did, but maybe they regret the hurt that happened, you know? This can be sometimes really, really a great repair. And it's something that doesn't happen in one, one conversation. It probably will need many conversations, sometimes for years so that the trust can come back and it's going to be bit by bit. And maybe also there will be things that will trigger, um, the hurt more at the beginning and less afterwards. It's a bit like trauma, really, you know, when, when the trauma is super fresh or you have never worked about uh, on it, everything reactivates it. 
And when it's been some time and you really worked on it and stuff, then it's easier. And with, with this type of trust, it's also a very important thing. And also another thing that is important is that maybe the person that has betrayed kind of keeps in mind where, what could be the triggers for the other. Like, for example, you know, if the betrayal happened on a specific couch, let's say, you know, maybe it would be good that the person that has betrays, betrayed says, you know what, maybe we're going to change the couch, you know, and, but talk about it with a partner first, huh? because if not, it could be, are oh, you just trying to get away with your guilt and this is not okay. So talk about it first, right? Okay, yeah. But, you know, maybe asking, Hey, you know, I know this couch is a trigger thing for you. What do you want to do with it? You know, I was I was thinking about that. I can I can understand that this couch is is something that is triggering for you. What should we do about it? You know, so kind of taking care of the person that is hurting so much, and if the person that was betrayed has the space for making the same kind of move for the other, like saying, "Hey, what happened in our, our relationship?" that you had to cheat what happened or what happened for you because usually cheating is about i went to experience a part of myself that wasn't alive anymore in our relationship and i went to live it somewhere else something mm -hmm. like that so it can also be having this curiosity hey what is the part of you that was not alive anymore can we get that part alive again inside of our relationship mm -hmm. And well, this I'm talking about situations where there is a hurt um, because there is a, an, an infidelity, but sometimes there is not, you know, so sometimes I have people coming, I had a patient coming in my office saying, well, you know, my girlfriend cheated on me and it did nothing to me. Is it a problem? You know, I was fine with, it. I really understood why she did it. I understood it was a one-time thing and it's fine for me. Do I have a problem? That's interesting. I've actually never thought of that. Okay. And I, I told him, no, it's not a problem. You know, sometimes it, and again, maybe it didn't, actually it didn't hurt him because he didn't compare himself to the guy she cheated him with. Which is a common pitfall, right? One question I was going to ask is, do you have any advice on whether people should know the details of what happened? Mm -hmm. I guess that is very personal and everyone's going to have a different opinion, but I think sometimes there is a desire to know. You want to know everything about it. I don't know for what reason, but then afterwards you're like, oh, that makes me feel worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting question because this thing of I need to know everything sometimes comes from a defense mechanism of control. You know, if I know mm. everything, then I can control the situation. And maybe then, first of all, it's like, okay, if the person tells me everything, I know they're not lying. So I can control what they're saying and I can kind of trust them again. You know, this type of idea. And also, if I know everything that has happened, maybe next time I can prevent it. So maybe it comes from that fear, from that defense mechanism. When it comes from there, I'm not so keen on saying it's a good idea. You know, it's because it's usually, it's, it's a tool for control. Control can be a way of coping and I, you know, it makes sense. But if it's too much into, I want to control the other person, that usually, first of all, the other person is usually going to 
say no or like reject and then it's gonna add on the oh yeah so you don't want to tell me everything so I can't trust you that's the proof of it so it gets even worse but then on the other hand it's important to have enough elements to be able to make a coherent story about it so if it's about tell me about what what happened for you no actually what will bring back trust is not so much about details of what happened because this is usually doesn't help. It's like, oh, yeah. actually, I didn't want to know that. So it's not about, hey, what position did you do during the thing? It's what happened for you, my partner, that it brought you to that situation? So usually it's it's better question is like, to, and that really also makes empathy be back in the relationship because it brings back the opportunity to understand what happens in the other person oh that's why you cheated on me it's because this and this happened for you no so knowing everything is more about if you want to know everything about your partner it's a good idea if you want to know everything about the facts not sure it's gonna help that makes a lot of sense yeah well Thank you very much for your time, Ariane. Um, this has been a very fruitful conversation. I want to leave this open to some questions from the audience, people listening. If you have any, definitely send me a message, uh, comment, write to us on Instagram because we can definitely continue this conversation afterwards if any of you have it. Uh, but yes, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening as well. I wish you lots of lovely sex, whether now, soon or in the future. And as always, if you could rate, review and share this episode, I would be super grateful. Have a great week, guys.